right. We're going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9 to 12 this morning. You can follow along on the screen, or uh, you'll find it in your pew Bibles as well. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dave. We are in our third week of a four-week series on work. Uh, We've been trying to consider what work is, what it's for, how do we we choose our work, how do we find fulfillment in our work. And and the first week was essentially uh, talking about how work was created by God as a good thing, that we should appreciate and and not just uh, think of as part of what it means to live in the drudgery of life. You know, you got to work in order to eat. Um, And so, you know, it is what it is. But rather to see work as a good gift from God through which we can glorify Him. That's what we talked about the first week. The second week we talked about last week uh, about how difficult it is because of the distortion of work caused by sin. We live in a world where sin has made work function in a way that it was not designed to work. Uh, It's frustrating. It feels pointless. We don't get the same kind of satisfaction out of work that we hope to for a whole host of different reasons. That's what we looked at last time. This time what we're going to look at is we're going to think a bit about what, what I'm just calling the redemption of work. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that means that you have had a meaningful encounter with him, a saving encounter with the God who made the stars. Now, if you have a meaningful encounter with a being like that, don't you think that it should affect how you live? I hope you're thinking, yes. If I had a, I mean, I, did I ever tell you that I got five minutes alone with Tim Keller once? That kind of changed my life. But even Tim Keller does not compare to the living God. If you've had a meaningful encounter with Jesus Christ, you have experienced uh, the one who flung the universe into existence. And so that should affect how you live and it should affect how you work. We should expect that. And now we're looking at 1 Thessalonians here where Paul is speaking to a community who has had a meaningful encounter with Jesus Christ and he starts talking to them about how that encounter should affect their lives. And he, he basically, in, in chapter 4, he, he talks about three areas of life. He talks about uh, sex, sexuality, he talks about work, and he talks about end times. These are probably three topics that, that are forever on the minds of human beings, frankly. And Paul talks about each of these in this passage. Now we, of course, are going going to focus our attention on only one of those subjects. We're going to look at what Paul says about work and how work is changed by the fact that we have been redeemed in Christ. 
And what we're going to look at is, is we're going to see that Paul tells us what not to do, he tells us what to do, and then he tells us why. These are the three things that we're going to see this morning. So let's have a look. First of all, Jesus, or sorry, Paul tells the Thessalonian church, and he tells you and I what not to do with respect to our work. In verses 9 and 10, he's talking about how he has witnessed the love that the Thessalonians have for one another. And he says, you know, you love each other, and this is a good thing. And what I want you to do is to continue to love each other, love each other more and more. This is verse 10. You love all of the mass of God's family throughout Macedonia. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. What he's probably referring to is the Thessalonian church's um, generosity, that they had given a collection for the churches in the, the region that is Macedonia, and that's evidence of their love growing. And, and if you are a Christian, you know that if God gets a hold of your heart, he also ends up getting a hold of your wallet, and that's how it works. That's a, another sermon, but I'll, I'll just leave that with you as you think about the capital campaign. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But then he says, I want you to love more and more. So he wants, to show, he wants them to display their love even beyond what they have been doing so far. And then he says, here's how you do it. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands. Huh? All of a sudden, Paul starts talking about working. And the point is, is that, that Paul is saying the way you will show your love to the world and the way you show your love to your fellow man or woman is actually by doing your work. You fulfill the law that says that you should love your neighbor as yourself by going to work. But wait a minute. There's some things that you shouldn't do when you're going to work and that's what he's going to uh, what we're going to talk about first. He says, "Mind your own business and work with your hands." So what you should not do, Paul says, is is be a disruptive uh, force in your workplace. Don't be difficult. Don't be divisive. Don't be a troublemaker. Now, why would Paul say that to the Thessalonians? Well, here's why. You need to know a little bit of background about the context here. Thessalonica was a city that, in Macedonia, that was conquered by Rome, okay? And it became the capital city of the Macedonian region. And Caesar had said, you guys can basically live free as long as you maintain your allegiance to, uh, to Caesar. So Thessalonica was a very political city. A lot of politicians there, a lot of political stuff happening there. To be honest, I don't know what exactly all the political stuff was, but that's what the scholars say. Politics infected a lot of their lives in Thessalonica. Now what had happened recently in Rome was... The gospel had reached the city of Rome, and it was preached in the synagogue first, which is the way it was always uh, preached first when it was um, sort of spreading uh, from Jerusalem out into the Roman Empire in the beginning. And, of course, some Jews believed it, some Jews didn't believe it, and the next thing you know, there's tension and there's warring factions between different types of Jews, at least from the Roman perspective, in this Roman church. And Caesar gets wind of this warring factions, and it's disruptive to the city and to the community. And he's told by the Jews who don't like the, the other Jews who became Christians. Are you following me? 
hope so. Okay. He hears from the Jews that want to remain Jews that the Jews that became Christians were advocating a foreign god, another leader, another lord other than Caesar. And Caesar's like, wait a minute, we can't have that. So he kicks all the Jews out of Rome. Okay? You're going to read about that in the book of Acts. Now here we are in Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, Paul shows up in Macedonia and he does the same thing. He goes to the synagogue and he preaches the gospel. And some Jews believe and some Jews don't. And the Jews who don't believe, they go to the leaders of Thessalonica and they say, the same thing that was happening in Rome is now starting to happen in Thessalonica. This is a bad scene and Paul has to leave. You can read about that in Acts 17. And in response to that, Paul writes... The, letter to the, fir- uh, the first letter to the Thessalonians. And what he's saying is, look, you need to be careful not to be a needlessly dramatic in your community. Yes, you are supposed to stand for the truth. Yes, you are supposed to turn from idols. And he says, you did that in uh, chapter 1. But he says, don't stir up trouble beyond that. Try to live at peace in the city. Don't be, don't stand out as an agitator. And, and the lesson for you and me is, 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 look, we are weird enough already because of our faith. You are strange enough in your workplace already because you believe differently than the people that you work with and because you have a different moral standard by which you live by. You don't have to be obnoxious on top of being weird for the sake of the gospel. So you don't pick fights on Twitter. You you don't stir up dissension on Facebook. And you certainly don't do it in the lunchroom at the office. This can be hard, okay? Sometimes you have people that are difficult to work with. Sometimes you have bosses that are not always very easy to work with. Somebody told me recently, who was it now? I can't remember who it was. But somebody told me recently that... Most people leave jobs not because the job kind of sucks, but because the boss kind of sucks. So if you're a boss, be a good boss. People don't want to follow bad leaders. Don't be the kind of person who complains about your boss to your coworkers and says, you know, he's unfair and he plays favorites or, you know, we're, we're underpaid for what we do or, or so-and-so in, in the cubicle three, three cubicles down. They're kind of lazy. Paul says this, you notice what he says? He says, um, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. It's very interesting. He's saying that there's, there's a possibility that some of these people are disquieted. And you can be disquieted at work because your work isn't very fulfilling. And maybe it's a difficult workplace, etc. So maybe your job doesn't fit you and maybe you should go looking for another job. But it could also be that you're disquieted because your attitude sucks. That you're not a good worker, that you don't come in to work with, with, a, with a positive attitude, ready to contribute to the, to the cause of the company or, or, or to the corporation that you're a part of. That could be part of it too. Paul is calling the Thessalonians to love their neighbors. And one of the things they need not do is be difficult co-workers and difficult employers or employees. And, and he says, try to lead a quiet life. Scholars say that, that what he's saying here, the language he's using is literally strive for quiet through your work. Meaning, do your best to find work that kind of fits how you're 
how you're built, that fits your insides. You know, you have talents, you have abilities, you have, you have desires, of course, and, and you could do lots of different jobs. Many of us could do a whole bunch of different things, and, and some of the things we could do will fit better to, with us uh, rather or, or than other things, because work is meant to be fulfilling. It's nothing wrong with you wanting to find satisfaction in what you do. That is a creational good that has been disordered by the fall, but that doesn't mean you should no longer aspire to it. You should aspire to it. Find out what does make you tick. Find out what does move you in the right direction to, towards using your skills and abilities. And don't be grumpy and difficult if you're in a situation where you don't feel like that's happening. Be patient. First of all, mind your own business, Paul says. And, and, and here's another thing to remember. Don't see your work as primarily a mission field. You're like, what? I thought you were always telling us to evangelize. Well, yeah. But your place of work is first and foremost your place of work, where you're supposed to work. Duh. You're thinking, yeah, but hold on, stick with me. Don't be obnoxious with your faith at work. You're not an evangelist first and an employee second at work. No, you're an employee first who maybe will have opportunity to evangelize, but you don't need to be showing up at work in the first week and try to start a Bible study at lunch hour. Or, or you know, your first day of, school, of, of work and someone says, oh yeah, where are you from, what do you do, etc., etc. Oh, by the way, my church is having this great event on Sunday, do you want to come? Or hit your neighbors up, your, your co-workers up for a ministry. You know, start walking around with the, with the jar and a flyer saying, hey, we're all going to the Dominican Republic to build a house. Do you want to help give to that? And your, your neighbor, who does, your worker who works with you isn't a believer, doesn't know anything about that. They're like, what, am I sending you to a five-star resort? Yes, you're going to share Jesus when appropriate, but your first priority as a Christian worker is to do your work well. That's your first priority at work. Now, for all of you who have never shared your faith with your co-workers and you've been there for 10 years and you think I just let you off the hook, no, I did not just let you off the hook. Because you love people and because you believe in hell and because you deeply in your heart believe that Jesus rescued you from condemnation, you will and should, you should and will share your hope that you have with other people in the workplace. But that's not your primary responsibility when you go to work. That's all I'm saying. What is your primary, primary, that primary responsibility? Well, Paul says this. He says it's to work. Work with your hands. In other words, be a productive force in your community. Use your skills for the betterment of the world. When we work well, we are loving our neighbor. Remember we said the definition of work in, our, in, in the very first one uh, sermon in this series. We said, work is the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. Let me say it again. Work is the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. And so we don't retreat from society as Christians. We engage productively with our society by working. Paul expands on this in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28. Here's what he says. He who has been stealing, excuse me, must steal no longer, but must work, 
doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Notice he says, doing something useful. That's the purpose of your work, to be useful. When you're thinking about a job, an opportunity to take, how do you decide what you're going to do with your life? How do you decide what you're going to dedicate yourself to? Of course, you think about what you're interested in. You think about what you're educated in. You think about what you're skilled at, etc., But let's say you have two options in front of you and they both maybe look pretty good and you're trying to figure out which one to take. Go to Ephesians 28, 28, sorry, and ask yourself, which one of these makes me more helpful? Which one of these things makes me more useful? And if there's no real difference between the two, fine. Then, then pick the one that you think will make you more fulfilled. And if you're not really sure about that, pick the one that makes you more money. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with Christians wanting to make money and make good money and make lots of money. It is the love of money that is a danger. That's an idol that can enslave you and destroy your life. But just making money for the sake of being useful to others in order that you have a family that you can provide for or a church that you can support or nonprofit agencies that you want to help out, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. There are certain jobs out there that are very, very lucrative, but they're not actually very, very useful. They don't help the world. And then there are jobs out there that are extremely useful, but they're not very lucrative. Think of people who work with our youngest and people who work with our oldest. Extremely important work, not very well-paid work. Why is that? Because we live in a fallen and broken world. You know, every time... Another professional athlete signs a multi-hundred million dollar contract. My wife goes ballistic. And she's like, that's what's wrong with this world. Because you're good at shooting a ball in through a little hole. You make $35 million a year. While someone who toils and sweats and by caring for elderly people in a nursing home doesn't even make a living wage. There's something wrong with that. That's true. There is something wrong with that. We live in a broken world and it's not right. And so a Christian is always asking themselves, how can I be useful with what God has given me? That's my criteria. And there's two ways we're useful. We produce things that are good for the world and helpful for our society. And then we also make money. Paul says in Ephesians 28, he says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands. Why? So he has something to share with those in need. In our text here in Thessalonians, Paul says, so that you will, not, you will be dependent, you will not be dependent on anybody. Um, if you want to support your family, you need to make money. You might need to make lots of money, and that doesn't make you greedy. It makes you fulfill your calling to try not to be dependent on anybody. Uh, Paul was speaking to Thessalonians who thought that Jesus was coming back like really, really soon. And a bunch of them were quitting their jobs because they're like, Jesus is coming back. And he's saying to them, no, 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 you have to keep working right up until the day the Lord returns because you don't want to be dependent on anybody. And in Second Thessalonians 3, he becomes a little more frustrated with those who are not working, who are capable of working. And he says, look, 
get a job. If you're not willing to work, you shouldn't, you're not going to be able to eat. He who does not work does not eat. Now, Paul is not saying that every person on the planet has to work for pay. There are some folks for a variety of reasons for their, their, that, that there's difficulty for them uh, with respect to that. Remember, helping others is work. All the things we do to help others is work. If you're cleaning your home, it's work. If you're organizing uh, files uh, for your Grace Kids ministry at church, it's work. You can work in all kinds of ways, not necessarily in paid ways. But Paul is saying we're, we're contributing to society because we don't want to be dependent on anyone. And by the way, you know, I said it's good for you to find work that fits your personality or fits your giftedness and your skills and you find fulfilling, etc. But, but Paul does not say that you must find a job that fits you best. Most, of, most people in human history did not do what they dreamed of doing. Most people in human history were farmers, slaves, okay, or homemakers, or all three. And they didn't get to choose what their, what their uh, vocation was going to be. Now, it's hard to believe that God wants most people in the world to be farmers and slaves and homemakers. And so it's fine for us to pursue those things that fit our nature and our character. Absolutely. And yet, many people can't because of the circumstances they find themselves in. And so we're all still called to do our best with our abilities. What I'm trying to say, sometimes you should quit your job to find another job. Sometimes it's time to learn to like your job and stay in your job. So, what not to do, what to do. Next week we'll talk about how do we figure those things out in a little more depth, but... Paul here says what not to do, and then he says what to do. And, and the question of why is because we're supposed to contribute to society and be useful. We even create wealth in order to leverage our wealth for the common good. Paul says in verse 12, he says, this is another reason uh, so that you may win the respect of outsiders. Now, evangelism is not your primary role in your, in your workplace. To glorify God is your primary role in your workplace. To please God means that you make work worship. You offer yourself to your work for the glory of God. And I can give you a quick illustration of what that looks like because Keith Knight sent me this, this great email that I'm just going to quote. <laughs> he said, two friends of mine both worked at the GM plant in Oshawa. Both were in their early 50s. Whenever I asked one of them, how's it going? One would respond by saying, just 13 more years and six more months before I retire. He lived for the pension plan. The other guy would regularly talk about the conversations he'd have on the assembly line, sharing his faith, talking about family, things like that. In both cases, work was worship. One was worshiping the notion of a pension plan, and the other growing the kingdom of God. Paul says we work in part so that we can win, win the respect of those outside of the Christian faith in a place that they understand. They don't understand the church. Non-Christians don't understand the church community. Why would they? They're never here. 
They don't participate in it. We talk about stuff that doesn't make sense to them. That's completely legitimate and fair. You know what they understand? They understand the workplace. They understand the grind of getting up every day and working 8 to 5 or 7 to 5 or 9 to 6 or I don't know what your hours are. Maybe it's 9 to 9. And they get how hard life is at work, how difficult it can be to grind out an existence at work. That's what they understand, the workplace. And when you work hard and you work well and you work with integrity and you work with honesty... They will notice this. You notice Paul says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. These are Christians he's talking to who apparently have been stealing in order to get, them, uh, in order to get by. And Paul says, stop it. Don't steal time at your workplace. If your break is 10 minutes, take a 10-minute break. Don't take a 14-minute break. Don't take a 10-minute break and then you have to go to the washroom and do all this other stuff for another 7 or 8 minutes and then come back to work. That's stealing time. Don't steal materials. Don't steal stuff from your workplace. I mean, this all makes complete sense to you, but how many times have you done this? You know, when your boss is away, you know, things loosen up around the workplace sometimes. You know, you come in a few minutes late. You leave a few minutes early. Coffee break runs a few minutes long. And we think, ah, that's not a big deal. But you're getting paid for those hours. You are stealing time from your employer. Look, in some sense, it really sucks to be a Christian because, I know I, I can't believe I just said that, but it does. Because you show up at work and your coworkers are okay, maybe some of them are okay with, you know, letting things slide a little bit. And you can't let things slide because you know that you're not working just for your employer. You're working for the glory of God. And you know that your employer may be off at the cottage. Hmm, he's got a cottage. And you're still at work, but you know that God is not off at the cottage. He's still watching you. And you answer ultimately to your God. And because of all he is and all he's been for you and all he's done for you, you have an not just a desire, but you do have a responsibility to honor him in your workplace. And that's hard. People may not like you for it. People may say, hey man, you're making the rest of us look bad. But they'll respect you for it. They may resent you, but maybe you'll win respect. That's what God is is calling us for. And then when you have that, then you have an opportunity to share where that integrity comes from. It's not because you are afraid of God's judgment. No, your integrity comes out of a place of love and commitment to your Savior. He gave himself entirely for you and he held nothing back. And so you say, I am not holding anything back for him. Every day at work, I offer myself as a living sacrifice to him. You know who's the the greatest biblical example of this, it's, it's actually, it's Daniel and his friends. I don't know how well you know the story, but in the Old Testament, let me tell this really quickly. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were supposed to reflect the character of God to the world. That was the whole point of God creating this nation of Israel. So that when people wanted to see what is God, the real God like, they would look at the nation of Israel and they go, whoa, these people have completely different morals than us and they have a different way of looking at life than we do and, and they say it's all because of their god so their god must be like that and they're supposed to stand in awe of that now if you know the old testament you know that israel did a really 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 bad job of that 
They started worshiping other idols. They wanted to be like the other nations because, you know, they're cool. And we want to be cool too. And so God finally, after calling them to repent over and over and over again, he said, enough. I am sending you off to exile. You guys want to worship idols? I'm going to send you to the idol factory of the world. You're going to Babylon. And so a whole bunch of them had to go to Babylon. And three of, four of those people were Daniel and his friend Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they show up in Babylon, and the Babylonians say to them, we're going to change your names. You're going to be Belteshazzar, which, that is cool. Belteshazzar. That's a name, right? The other guys get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not nearly as cool. Daniel gets Belteshazzar. Anyway, they say, okay. And then they say, you know what? Your, your Jewish education is not good enough. We're going to educate you ourselves. We're going to send you off to Babylon University. And they say, okay. And when they get there, do they foment dissension? Do they start uh, uh, protests? Do they rail against the institution? No, they crush it at Babylon University. They're so good that they graduate top of their class. And so what happens is, is they get hired into the government. The government takes the cream of the crop. And so now they're working in the government. And do they go there to subvert the paradigm, to undermine the, pa the Babylonian rule and overturn their institutional structures? No, they crush it at their jobs. They're so good at their jobs that they keep getting pr promoted over and over and over again. It says in Daniel that they were 10 times wiser, 10 times better at their jobs than the Babylonians were. And so now they're running almost everything in the Babylonian government. And so they come to him and they say, now, here's what we want you to do. We want you uh, to bow down to this idol that we've made. And what do they say? Do they say, okay? No. Now they say, we can't do that. We will serve you. As best as we can, we will run your country as efficiently and as well as we possibly can do it. And we will work really, really hard, but we cannot sell our integrity. Now, they weren't doing this to be needlessly dramatic, okay? They weren't doing this to be divisive. They weren't doing this to, to cause unnecessary trouble. They were doing this because they wanted to be faithful. And so the Babylonians say, look, bow down to this or we're going to have to kill you. We're going to burn you. We're going to throw you into a furnace and burn you to death. You do what you got to do. You want to fire me? Fire me. You want to really fire me? Do it. But we can't compromise our faith and our integrity for the sake of working for you and so they do it they get thrown in and these three friends they they take the hit for their allegiance to God and you know what God preserved their life in the furnace of affliction in the fires of being canceled God stands with his faithful people and you know what happens they come out of there and it it starts to change Babylonian culture it starts to change Babylonian culture. These believers entered Babylon. They crushed at their jobs. They did not sell out their integrity. They pursued their passion in their jobs for a higher glory than their own. Uh, uh, 
retirement fund or their own second home or their own uh, reputation. They did it to glorify God. They came in there and they said, I'm going to excel at what you understand. The things that you greatly value, I am going to be amazing at it. And when you wonder why I am and why I work so hard at it, I'm going to point to my higher purpose. I'm going to point to my God. And you know what? This is what changes the world, friends. This could change Dundas. This could change Hamilton. This could change Canada because we have a great, great Savior. Um... You know, if you wait tables or you write briefs or you balance spreadsheets or you spread manure, pull wire, teach kids, you do it all for God's glory, you can win the respect of the world. Maybe not the love of the world, but the respect of the world by showing your love for your community and how you work. Now, the only way you're going to do this, of course, and have the power to do this is if Jesus enables you to do this. You will not be able to do the work that Jesus requires of you unless you first let him do the work that he needs to do in you. Think about what Jesus did. He was given a job. Messiah. And he wasn't just asked to give his nine to five to his work or even his, six, his seven to seven during the busy season. He was asked to give his entire self because not only was he called to preach and teach and sometimes be hated for what he said and, and called out by the leaders uh, of his nation, he was actually called to stand in our place and die for our sin. And so when work was hard for Jesus, he did it willingly, he did it perfectly, he worked tirelessly for us to redeem our work so that our work can have a meaning beyond just getting what's mine. Don't you want that higher calling? Don't you want that higher purpose? Don't you want to be able to be a part-time kid working at McDonald's or Tim Hortons and all you're doing is slinging coffee and thinking to yourself, what am I doing this for? It's just to get a little bit of money so I can save up for school so I can get a real job. No, you can wake up and you can say, I do this to bring glory to God. And so every time, I, I had this... I, don't, I almost never go to coffee shops anymore at all, but I used to go to Tim Horton's drive through quite often in Waterdown, and there was such a sweet gal in there who every time she gave me my coffee at the window, and you know what, the window job sucks because in the wintertime, that window's opening up all the time and you are freezing cold. But it did not matter when you went, how cold it was, she stuck her hand out with that coffee and she said, hope you have a great day and would smile. She honored God with her work. I don't even know if she was a believer. But that's honoring God with her work because the little thing that she thought she was doing or that many people think is doing, slinging coffee, what's the big deal? No, no, no. It was meaningful, powerful. And you can have that in anything you do if you would look to Christ as the one who first gave his everything on the cross and did the work of saving you from your sin. Let's be good workers, folks. Not for our glory, but for his. Pray with me. Father, teach us to love you with all of our lives, meaning our work life too. Not just on Sundays when we come to church, 
Not just at meal times when we maybe do a Bible reading or devotions with our families, but may we do it from 9 to 5, 8 to 5, 8 to 10, I don't know. Whenever we are at work, whatever you've called us to do. And if we're students and our job is to study, may we do it to the best of our ability for your glory, Lord, that the world will see something different about us and we may gain their respect. When we have that, Father, perhaps, perhaps their hearts will be open to hearing about you and your grace because that's what motivates us, you and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. It has been so long since we've had a chance to take questions. Oh, grade five, grade six, sermon breakout in the dining room. You can go out the back and down the stairs into the dining room. While you're doing that, we're going to possibly take a question or two about work. Um, Here's a question I got. While we can individually do good work, how do we honor God while being part of a system that often exploits people and the environment? Well, for one thing, um, the the work we do, if you have a choice... Uh, with respect to the work you do. You can choose to work for uh, outfits that fit your moral values and system the way you believe. So, I'll, so for example, I'll give you an example. I, I knew someone who was really struggling because they were in marketing. They were good at marketing. They were good at selling stuff. Um, and they had a pretty lucrative job offer to work for uh, a gambling outfit, one of these online betting things. And they were struggling with whether or not to do it because, you know, it's a tough case to make that gambling is good for society. Uh, and so they chose to go in a different direction. Not all marketing is bad, but you don't need to market things that are necessarily bad on society. So that's one level. The second level is um, the work of the church is to advocate for justice and for righteousness. And so as a church, we can speak to exploitation and against exploitation. We can speak against environmental degradation. Uh, We can, as Christians, in the areas of our lives that we have control over, like your home life, for example, you can try to uh, work hard to Uh, minimize, let's say, like language of minimizing your carbon footprint. And um, I I grew up, so I grew up in the first generation that really uh, recycled a lot. I remember in high school, these blue bins would be introduced and we all had to figure out where to throw the right stuff in the right place. And so now I'm like, I'm a kind of a hardcore recycler. And when, when my kids don't recycle. I become very agitated and and I'm like, don't you love the planet? Don't you love Jesus? Obviously you don't love Jesus because you you threw that plastic in the garbage instead of in the the recycling. And I got to show some grace. But at the same time, these are areas that you have control over. And your response might be, wow, didn't you know that all the recycling goes to the same place anyway? Well, that's the advocacy side of things. It's not my fault that my blue bin materials go to the wrong place. I'm responsible to the, for them up to the sidewalk. And that's the best I can do on that front. So there's that in your personal life. And then you can also, if you're building respect in your workplace, you can speak into these issues with your, with your superiors. You can say, hey, like, you know, 
is there, are there ways that we can source something uh, in, a, in, a, in a more environmentally uh, respectful way? Is there ways we could use technology that uh, it, uh, is better for the environment? And certainly, the exploitation thing, I'm not at all 100% sure what you're asking. Um, but I can say this, uh, Christian employers, you have a responsibility, I believe you have a responsibility, wherever possible, to provide living wages to those who work for you. It may cause you to take less profit, but you have uh, a Christian opportunity and responsibility to, where, where possible, provide good wages for those who work for you so that you are not exploiting them. Uh, and so that's, that's a way that an employer can do that, for sure. Is not just say, hey, the industry standard, standard is 22 bucks an hour. You get 22 bucks an hour. You look at the individual. You look at what their needs are. You look at what their pro capabilities are. And you say, well, maybe I can pay you 25. And that would better help you serve your family. Uh, so you may disagree with me on that. You can come put, like all you employers out there, come push back if you want. I'm ready. I did a whole bunch of reading this week on that very issue. So, <laughs> anyway. Uh, 